Greetings, everyone, to a, another Clear Mountain Wednesday evening live stream. We're here today with special guest, Rabbi Jordan Bendat Appel. And I think I probably said that slightly wrong, but uh, that was yeah. good. Okay. Yeah. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us. And Ajahn Kovilo, great to see you above me. Okay. So uh, to give a brief introduction. Rabbi Jordan Bendit Appel is a teacher of Jewish mindfulness and has spent years leading retreats and immersive experiences for adults in various settings through the National Ramah Commission, Orot Center for New Jewish Learning, and the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Jordan was the founding director of Rama Beyond and was director of Camp Rama in Canada from 2019 to 2022. Previously, he worked for the Institute for Jewish Spirituality spirituality, IJS, as a teacher of Jewish mindfulness and as director of the Jewish Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training. Jordan also taught meditation to rabbis and cantors through the IGS's clergy leadership program. After being ordained in 2008, Jordan served as a congregational rabbi outside of Chicago and co-founded Orot, Center for New Jewish Learning. Jordan is a recipient of the 2014 Covenant Foundation Pomegranate Prize. He and his wife, Yale, live in Toronto, and they are the proud and grateful parents of three. So, Jordan, um, I was uh, one rabbi we got in contact with, uh, recommended that we speak to you because of kind of our shared background and interest in contemplative practice. And these interfaith conversations have been some of the most meaningful I've had and seem particularly important for this moment. Um, and I just so appreciate you taking the time to join us. Oh, Jordan, I think you're muted. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, thanks so much. It's really an honor to be with you. And I too uh, truly value this kind of uh, human to human interfaith connection. Um, it's uh, really nourishes me and feels like it's more than just um, interesting um, but it's uh, it's much bigger than that. So grateful for the opportunity. Well, thank you. And um, I want to acknowledge it's three hours later for you. You took the time to join us from the Toronto. And uh, I wanted to actually just start. Um, I didn't have this on the questions initially, but I think I'd really appreciate if you wouldn't mind leading us in a three minute or four minute meditation together, if you wouldn't mind just our community. Yeah, uh, for sure. It'd be an honor. Um, and actually, the the timing is auspicious. Uh, right now, um, with sunset tonight, um, probably around right now um, on the West Coast, um, we are entering into a holiday called Tubi Shvat, um, which means the 15th of the month of Shvat. And it's a holiday that celebrates uh, trees, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, so perhaps we could sit together like trees uh, with our, our legs, our bottoms, uh, feeling solidly, deeply rooted in the earth, feeling solid, but also allowing for a natural movement of breath uh, and time to flow through us like the branches flowing in the wind. And we'll just breathe like that for a few minutes. Shalom. Shalom was better than a bell by a long shot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi. What was the, um, what was the meaning of the, I mean, I assume it means peace, but 
Is that how you usually end meditations? Uh, often. Um, sometimes we do use a bell as well, and um, uh, but it varies, and it, in some ways, it, you know, it's interesting. Jewish mindfulness practice of the kind that I practice and teach and am involved in. Um, it's both uh, new and old. And so, so with uh, my colleagues, we're often think about some of these things like, how do we end a period of meditation? Um, but uh, that word shalom is a very important one to us. And it can mean hello, goodbye. It means peace. But on a deeper level, it's connected to the uh, word shlemut, uh, which means wholeness, uh, or shalem, whole. So there's a, a sense of uh, that when we're, we're wishing somebody peace or when we're invoking that idea of, of shalom, it's not just a kind of uh, uh, you know, surface level peace, but there's a deeper sense of, of wholeness that we're, we're connecting to. Yeah, I just recently learned of the affinity between the word shalom and uh, Sanskrit and Pali word santi, which also means peace. And you do find it sometimes in the in the, the Buddhist canon as just a exhortation like santi, 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 peace, peace, peace. And um, I read somewhere that they were cognate. So, yeah, oh, beautiful. Cool. And actually kind of dovetailing off of that uh, with that tracing of language, you know, and the shared word or uh, root of peace in, in terms of maybe introducing yourself and how you uh, found your way from, I know you were a Zen practitioner back in the day, and that brought you directly back to the faith of your, your birth, I think, and, you know, where you currently are. And I wondered if you'd describe that journey for, for us. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, and again, it's it's very meaningful to me personally to share this with you all. Uh, usually, when I'm talking about this, it's in a Jewish setting, and uh, but you'll see it's 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 wonderful to share it with you all. Um, so I grew up outside of Chicago, um, in a very um, kind of secular family. Uh, my family was connected to a reformed Jewish synagogue, had a bar mitzvah, but we didn't keep kosher, didn't uh, really have any Jewish religious ritual in the house. Very little, I should say. Um, my family would go to uh, high holiday services, but that was it, really. Um, and we had I had a strong Jewish identity, but... It was more cultural um, <clears throat> and a strong sense of connection with like peoplehood, but not really a spiritual experience. And truthfully, I didn't know that that was a thing, <laughs> uh, really. You know, I would hear things described, um, like I remember as a kid being in, in Hebrew school, like just wanting to be anywhere else but there. You know, this was after school. I went to a public school and then, you know, I wanted to be doing whatever, um, but not sitting there in Hebrew school. And I remember the teacher saying, um, like, God is um, omnipresent, meaning everywhere, and kind of unpacking that idea. And I just thought, like, oh, it's, like, interesting, but, you know, that's it. It's a, a kind of, like, like, going to museum and reading about something that happened a long time ago that is like, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. I can appreciate that, but it's at a distance. Um, uh, fast forward to my freshman year of college uh, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And um, I, uh, I, I joined a fraternity. Uh, I didn't activate, but I was pledging a fraternity. And I just thought that's what I should do. And uh, as all good, you know, or as many good stories like this go, it was like, you know, in a surprising place, you discover something. And I was standing there in the basement of this fraternity house, um, uh, maybe a Thursday night at during a party. And um, I had a beer in my hand. 
and I was looking around at this party, which was a kind of a normal college party, and it was fine. And I was hit to the core of my being in that moment, looking around that party with the realization that I wasn't happy and I would never be happy if I continued to do, to live how I was living. And I wasn't living in such a uh, extreme way, um, but it was more that I was doing just what I thought I should be doing. And, and it was a moment, thankfully, uh, that I had that at, you know, age 18. And I realized I had to change direction, but I didn't know what direction to head in. So when I um, started to ask myself, I left the fraternity and I started to ask myself, like, what has been meaningful work that I've, things that I've done in my life. And I'd done some volunteer work um, uh, in high school. And so I found a group that was doing work around hunger and homelessness in Madison, started working with them and uh, first volunteering with them. And the first day I met uh, this really great guy who's still a friend of mine, a guy named Robin. And uh, we were talking and he was like, hey, um, you might be interested in this book. And he handed me a book uh, by Thich Nhat Hanh. And um, I started reading it and immediately it was like, oh, this is what I was looking for. And I didn't have the language then, but I do now to know that what I really was looking for was a practice. And the, the ideas, the philosophy I loved and made so much sense to me, I was a biology major. And so with a kind of a scientific perspective, the Buddhist approach spiritually that I was finding like just was so resonant and felt so real and powerful. Um, and it was totally new, uh, which I think uh, for a lot of us Westerners coming into Buddhism, there's something um, in not in not having the baggage of our own traditions that um, you know, frees us to receive something in a fresh way. Um, and so, and I just like drank it in. Um, reading, started finding groups to uh, sit with. I found um, a Korean Zen group in Madison and also connected with a pretty sizable um, Tibetan community in Madison. Um, and started volunteering with them and doing re retreats and um, and also um, studying Buddhism academically kind of on the side as much as I could. And, and Madison had a, just a wonderful uh, program. Um, so I really, you know, like I said, I, I, I drank it in and I re really went deeply with it. Um, and I had started to read, especially uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh, um, his teaching about your and and him talking about how he encourages his Western students to reconnect with their own traditions, and I thought that was compelling and interesting, um, but interesting, like you know, again, it, it was closer than just seeing something in a museum, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to really take this on and this is me, but um, I started reading a little bit more about Judaism. And, and um, so fast forward, I uh, finished, finished school and uh, did some, some uh, work. And I spent a month at a Zen Mountain Monastery um, in Southern California, um, uh, Soto Zen tradition, and um, amazing, amazing experience. It's so hard <laughs> in, in all the best ways. Um, and actually when I was there, um, uh, there was another student who has, was spending some time there who, uh, was also Jewish and our visit, our time there, um, overlapped with the, the Jewish high holidays in the fall. And, um, so this woman, her name was Sunshine, I remember. Um, and this was in 1999, I believe. Um, I'm 46 years old. And um, so Sunshine and I went to the um, Zen Center of Los Angeles, which was hosting a Yom Kippur meditation retreat. Mm -hmm. 
And it was led by this rabbi who had been studying Zen. And it was this whole, the whole place was filled with Jewish people sitting in Zazen, but it was kind of framed in a Yom Kippur way and are connected to the teachings of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. And it was um, amazing for me, you know, and, and um, spoke to something very deep. Um, but still, I felt like my primary spiritual practice was in, in Buddhism. Um, and uh, I was, um, so did, worked, had that retreat, and then was heading on a one-way ticket to Asia with a couple of friends um, to travel. And um, as I, I met up with my friends in New York and we were flying from New York and um, um, the, <laughs> the Trinity Zippers, that's funny. Um, the, um, uh, I, we were leaving and we went to a bookstore. My friend wanted to get a book for our, our trip. And I, I, my eye just caught a book um, published by Shambhala Press, which is why I think it caught my eye. Because I had many of their books and I thought, oh, that like kind of caught my eye. I pulled it out and it was called um, Wisdom of the Jewish Mystics. And it was a paperback and it was a compilation of different Jewish spiritual teachings. I bought it and brought it with me. And um, as we were traveling in uh, first in Thailand and then Nepal, Tibet, um, uh, later again, back to uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, I was read through this book and um, was amazed to find in my own tradition a language for what I was experiencing, different language, but pointing towards the same core of experience. And um, when we were in Nepal, um, some I had a kind of profound experience one day, um, way up in the mountains, um, and was left it with the feeling of like maybe I should pursue becoming a rabbi. It was like literally out of the blue because I was looking up at the blue sky um, in the in the Himalayas and was not anticipating it. Like one second before that came to me, um, I, it was not in my mind and then it was there and then I couldn't shake it. And then that precipitated a kind of a new journey. Um, at the end of that trip, I actually ended up going um, uh, to Plum Village in France and spent close to two months there. Um, but I had was carrying with me for the first time, I just told my friends this and maybe my parents, but I hadn't told anybody else that I had this idea that I wanted to pursue becoming a rabbi. And, um, but I went to Plum Village with that and uh, the brothers and sisters there could not have been any more embracing of it and supporting of it. Um, and I actually, from there, went on a, a personal pilgrimage to Dachau, uh, one of the concentration camps in Germany, where my grandfather was as an American soldier uh, in the US Army. L whole long story, but um, which I'm happy to share, but I'll, I'll skip to the end, which is that these things have been all kind of connected for me. Um, my Buddhist journey led me to my Jewish journey, um, which still kind of brings in with it many of the beautiful things I learned in Buddhist practice. And truthfully, I, I don't feel like I could have, um, I wouldn't have been able to receive the gifts of my own tradition, I don't think, without having um, gone to uh this got had these experiences with within buddhism um you know i needed that leave taking uh in order to come back home uh, but when i came back home it was different uh yeah thank you very much rabbi i'm curious if you could speak more to this affinity between the two traditions i mean i'm more familiar these days because i've been living in monasteries for the last 16 years but i know the people who I know who are kind of straddling this, you know, Buddhist, Jewish, um, yeah, the, the symmetries um, are more on the Buddhist side of things. You know, I've got several 
quite a few um, monastic brothers who were born Jewish and maybe even still consider themselves Jewish. Um, and then lots of teachers like Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, many of like the earliest or the early generation of Theravada people bringing teachings from Southeast Asia um, back to America were born Jewish. And um, yeah, I think they largely, um, I wouldn't want to speak for them, but are more, you know, speaking in a Buddhist vernacular. And um, I'm curious if you could speak maybe to why that is, like, what is this consilience? What is this um, symmetry and shared something? It seems like there's something which is shared between the two. Um, and yet maybe it's somewhat of a silly question. Is there a difference between a Jew boo and a boo Jew? <laughs> I've heard both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great question. It's something I've thought about and, and talked with, you know, my friends about quite a bit. And when I was in the Buddhist world, it also it really struck me of how, you know, one would read the list of teachers who are teaching at a center or whatever. And it sounded like, like a list of the, like the synagogue membership. <laughs> and, um, and it was striking. And I think it's a very complex phenomenon. I had, I did some more thinking about this um, in preparation for this conversation. And, you know, my best sense, I'm no expert in this, um, and I, but I do actually know some people who have studied it academically um, because it really is a, a striking phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot to be said for um, a trauma response um, to the Holocaust and kind of the responses to the trauma responses. And as we all know, um, I think, you know, um, when human, so here's, let me take a step back. The, the way I would see this is that following the Holocaust in the 1950s, the Jewish community, which was trying to wrap its head around 6 million Jews being killed, uh, more, you know, a third of Jews alive at that time. Um, they, you know, there were a lot of things that came out of that, but the organized Jewish community in North America, especially really leaned into the organized sense of it, of it being organized mm -hmm. and, and building institutions, big synagogues, federations, communal organizations and it was and it gave a sense of um stability and security and um uh, yeah solidity hmm. very helpful for people who feel afraid um to build up around themselves and i'm not just saying that those organizations were like you know purely to make people feel better those organizations did amazing things and mo most of them existed before that time. Um, but in North America following, you know, the, the Holocaust, um, there was like a real focus on that. And I think there was less of a focus in a lot of the Jewish world in the, the inner work that was happening. So it was like, you know, a big structure was being built, but the, the inner structure was, was being neglected. It, of course, I'm painting with such a broad, you know, broad stroke. So it, it's not everybody's story. Um, but I also think that, and so consequently, a lot of Jews, as all human beings, like as we wanted um, and, and needed spiritual sustenance, it was very difficult to find it in the Jewish community. Hmm. Not impossible but it, it was hard. And I think there was also just so much baggage around that institutionalized Jewish world, especially then coming in the sixties when there was a, you know, in, in, there was a kind of an allergy to things that felt established. Um, the conditions were right for people to look for something new and exotic that could fulfill that spiritual need or speak to it. And, you know, I think, um, 
you know, Buddhism, there's a reason why it it attracts so many people. I mean, it, it, there's a, a, such a beautiful direct sense of like connecting with truth and speaking to the sense of practice without often getting weighed down with a lot of other stuff. Um, but if I could share a, an interesting story, I, I mean, it's interesting for me um, that, um, it, it, so when I went to Asia in 2000 and we went up to this uh, monastery in um, in Nepal called um, Tengbo Che, it's very high up and it was very cold. Me and my friends got there and it was, um, it was again. It was very. It was very cold. We heard the next morning. Um, we got there in the late afternoon, and we heard early in the morning. I don't know, five a.m. Um, there would be a service in the monastery there that we could come and visit. And um, I mean, this is on the t- top of the world, and I've never been to anything like that in my life. I was, you know, twenty-two years old, and um, uh, we went to the service. And it was so beautiful and uh, amazing, very powerful, the uh, horns and the bells and the meditation, the chanting. And then I started looking around like on a deeper level and I noticed, oh, like that monk, he's like talking with that other monk and that young teenage monk is like poking the ear of his friend next to him. And that one's clearly wants to be anywhere else but here. And I, re- I felt like, oh, this feels so familiar. <laughs> and then I realized like, oh, this feels like synagogue. <laughs> and I realized in that moment, like if I grew up Tibetan, then I would have so much stuff about Tibetan Buddhism. Like my uncle who was a really, you know, religious Tibetan Buddhist, like he drove me crazy. And, uh, you know, so that I would associate him with it. But growing up Jewish outside of Chicago, I didn't have any of those attachments to Buddhism, but I, I was, my relationship to Judaism was like laden with stuff and it was hard to cut through that. Mm-hmm. And I had, to, again, like I had to go far away in order to come back. And I think that's true for a lot of Jews, not that all are going to come back and I'm not making a claim for them too. Uh, but I think that's part of what's going on is that it's both that Judaism wasn't providing something and people had a real desire. And there was like such complicated stuff following the, the Holocaust. Another big part of this, again, the Holocaust is a big par- part of the story because mo- many of the like centers of spiritual richness, not all, but were in Europe and they were decimated. And so there were traditions orally um, uh, uh, transmitted um, spiritual traditions, especially in the Hasidic world and in the Musar world in Eastern Europe, that they were just cut over. And so we may have um, descriptions of things in texts, but there's often not the how that you get from your master like who teaches it to you, you're read. And so there was also a kind of a, like a, a cutting of the, the spiritual sh- shoots. Um, so in Buddhism played a very important part for many people of our generation, obviously myself included in helping to fill in some of those pieces and helping to shine a light on that inner core of practice and experience that then when it's held in a Jewish context, like brings those things alive. Thank you, Rabbi. And you're speaking to the decimation of the spiritual centers in, in Europe and kind of the cutting off of those lineages. It makes me wonder, I know that um, for me, Buddhism's one of its real gifts is this kind of pristine clarity of practice um and and yet i find for some people there is this profound homecoming that can happen when they return to their their faith of their childhood or there's a a sense of um some some very deep 
hunger being fulfilled there too. And I'm curious um, about the shared contemplative practices uh, in in Judaism, like which you I know lean into and and teach often. Are these um, are these the kind of practices you spoke of that have been largely cut off? Um, and right now, the Jewish part of the Jewish project is to revive and bring them back out using, to some extent, the lens of Buddhist practice. Or are there quite strong kind of lineages still there? And 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 what are like the key, you know, Jewish contemplative practices? I guess basically, um, and where do they come from? So huge question. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's great. Um... Uh, um, yeah, it's a great question. So it, I think the, the very quick answer is yes. Like it's kind of all the above. Um, and, um, so one could definitely trace a, a line, um, or kind of a stream of, uh, let's call it uh, Jewish mysticism, um, going way back, all the way back, you know, to the biblical sources many thousands of years ago. And certainly if one approaches them with that, with the lens of looking for it, you see it, um, in all kinds of ways. Um, but with an, with an orientation of, um, about awareness, about presence, especially, um, uh, um, about, uh, you know, using language, uh, th theistic language, you know, uh, uh, connected to God, um, but um, an intimacy with the divine um, and that experience. Um, then you see how, um, for example, um, in one of our early um, rabbinic sources um, in the Mishnah, which is 2000 years old, give or take, um, it says, Already at that time, um, it says, uh, Hasidim harishonim hayushohim sha'achat umit palalim. Um, the early generations of pious people would sit for one hour before they would pray, hmm. and then they would sit for an hour after they would pray. Uh, when was this again? This was already there. I mean, there. This was compiled two thousand years ago, and they were talking about their their ancestors okay. so a long time ago and already 2000 years ago they were saying you know this is what the pious people of old used to do we've kind of lost that and you know they're talking about that in the context of prayer and so there's a way in which prayer becomes a primary spiritual um uh, uh modality um and has within it a number of different pieces. Like there are different components to prayer. Um, and what we think about is, as prayer, tefillah in, in Judaism. But um, you see that there's a sense that it's not enough to say words. It's not enough just to go through the, the, um, the you know, the motions, but there is um, something incredibly skillful and po powerful in this kind of sustained practice of attention and quieting um it, you know and we see all kinds of sources like which means silence is a fence for wisdom meaning silence facilitates wisdom we have we have these sources um but it's hard to know what how people practice them um and things evolved over time and the the way in which um, the um, Jewish diaspora, the spreading of the Jewish people around the world also brought the Jewish people into contact with all these different traditions. And so you see like in medieval um, Islamic countries, especially Spain, um, uh, a, a flourishing of Jewish mysticism in parallel with, you know, Sufism mm -hmm. um, and similar kinds of things. Um, you know, and then again, there are these different streams of um, mystical oriented Judaism that go in different directions. Notably um, the mystics uh, in, in the land of Israel in like uh, the 15th century and 16th century, um, that's when Kabbalah was really uh, developed, which was 
a riff on stuff that came earlier. So, you know, these people were developing ideas based on stuff that came earlier, but new expressions of it. Um, and that was a very, very deep and, and intense mystical orientation um, that involved things that we would for sure see and identify as meditation and meditative techniques. Um, um, and then their, their descendants eventually, um, I mean, the Hasidic movement, which began with uh, the Baal Shem Tov, who was born in the year 1700, um, that took the what the um, Kabbalists were doing and took it to a different place. Um, and for me and many of my contemporaries, the Hasidic masters are often the sources that we go to as, as really shining a light on this like contemplative um, orientation. Um, and it, it, if you're coming from a mindfulness perspective, it's like, oh, amazing. It like really can speak to you. Do, do you have a um, name or two of a one or two masters or books you could just quickly drop into the conversation? To yeah, write? sure. Um, like the, the Svat Emet, um, uh, which was translated excerpts um, as the into English as um, the language of truth. Um, translated by Arthur Green. Um, and also I would recommend, um, I'm trying to think what would, uh, uh, a good one. you've got a lot of books there. Yeah, I know there's a lot. And, and then also I would recommend the teachings of um, Rebbe Nachman of Bratslav, um, who was uh, the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. Um, and, uh, um, was just an incredibly creative and um, brilliant person um, and with a tremendous focus on the spiritual life. Um, you know, and there's so many pieces uh, in which you could see how there's a kind of convergent evolution. Like, I remember, you know, studying the teachings of Shinryu Suzuki Roshi on uh, Beginner's Mind, and then you know, years later, come at and see Rebbe Nachman talking about how Tachlita uh, the culmination of knowledge is that I don't know, and and fleshing that out, like what does it mean to not know, and uh, to have this orientation of not knowing. Um, so you see how these different things, you know, come out. Um, um, I, I just should I respond to some of these amazing questions yeah, let, let me read some of them yeah some of these yeah, are sure. great um so this this one and i'll amend it a little bit um or add to it um so joseph asks uh, venerable rabbi uh, nice title there uh, could you please <laughs> share some of your favorite jewish blessings that inspire your practice of loving kindness and i'd like to add on there not necessarily just jewish blessings but jewish prayers or even jewish practices whether it's old from these mystics you're mentioning or more modern practices of loving kindness, shades of, um, of the practical that maybe aren't found in, in Buddhism. Yeah. Cause I, I just happen to have this thing up on my wall here. Um, I don't know if it's backwards for you, but, oh yeah, it is. Um, but the, if you, uh, this is something called the, 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 uh, priestly blessings, um, in Hebrew, birkat kohanim. Um, and these are incredibly ancient words. I mean, they're written in, they're found in the Torah, in, in the uh, Leviticus, Vayikra. Um, but even amulets have been found um, by archaeologists with these words, you know, again, like, I don't know, two, three thousand years ago in Israel. Um, words that were given um, as a sort of um, words of blessing uh, that the priests would give to the people. And then later, um, often parents give it to children every Friday night. Um, it, it Liturgically, it, it's used in a, a number of different ways. Um, but I've been doing a practice with it um, in which I, I like to distill down, there are three lines. Each line has two components and you can kind of distill them down to like six blessings, if that makes sense. Um, and, uh, and actually if you Google or go on YouTube, um, I did, uh, through this project as part of, there's an animated, <laughs> um, little, uh, uh, meditation, guided meditation that I lead based on this. So you can find more, 
um, if you look it up, Priestly Blessing um, and Jordan Ben-Dot-Appel. We'll, we'll put a um, link to that in the in the show notes. Okay, great. Um, and so, in in these are these are loving kindness uh, blessings, um, blessings that um, one can practice with as I do. You know, certainly um, offering them to others in my life, um, and also to myself. You know, just like you would do in in a Buddhist practice. Uh, you know, the, a neutral person, uh, uh, ultimately a challenging person. Um, it's advanced practice, um, but it's really a cultivation practice um, of cultivating these heart qualities. Um, and just to say them quickly, if, if that's okay. Um, so in the Hebrew, the first line, Yivarechecha Adonai Vishmarecha, which means may God bless you and protect you. And so I think of this as uh, may you feel uh, blessed, may you feel safe. Second line, Ya'er Adonai Panave Lecha Vichuneka. May God shine divine light upon you and be gracious to you. So the first part is, uh, may you feel luminous, like light shining upon you and through you. Um, and may you feel loved. And this language of love, the word love there, there's a few different Hebrew words for love, uh, but it's, uh, this is a love that is, um, uh, like in modern Hebrew, there's the word chinam, which means free. Like buy a t-shirt and get a pair of socks for free. Chinam. This is a kind of love that's free. Like you didn't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. It's just love that is like divine love that, that, that um, flows to you. Um, third, May the divine look at you with favor and grant you peace. Uh, so this idiom of looking at you with favor um, probably meant something like to smile at. Like when somebody lifts, it literally means to lift up your face. May God lift up God's face towards you. So like, may you feel that happiness coming towards you and may you feel happy. Um, and may you feel peaceful there again at the end, as in all of our prayers, it ends with, with Shalom, with, with peace. Um, so may you feel peaceful. So that's one kind of, uh, practice that I like to do that, you know, flows from this really ancient prayer. It's, it's a prayer that's a normative part of Jewish life and found in many ways in Jewish life. And what I'm interested in my, you know, my, my, colleagues, you know, we're, and other teachers, we're really looking to take these structures and really like infuse them with deeper meaning and to raise up the ways in which they can help us really cultivate the qualities of being that we hope to cultivate and to really thrive as human beings. Um, so a lot of what we're trying to do is like re-inhabit the structures that are already there. Um, taking our cue from our ancestors and, you know, learning what we've learned along the way. Thank you, Rabbi. And I, uh, I know that power of um, the language of the, these prayers and these kind of blessings we grew up with, like they invoke something pretty profound in the heart. And I think if that's marshaled with an actual practice, like there's huge alchemy there. Um, just briefly, we're gonna to have to say goodbye to Ajin Kovilo. He's gonna go hold down Zoom. Rabbi, can we keep you on for another 10 minutes? Or... Uh, yeah, yeah. Are you sure? Do you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I could do 10 minutes, yeah. Okay, we'll do 10 minutes, 10 minutes. Uh, and uh, for those who are uh, interested now or later, um, there's a Zoom link we just posted in the chat. Uh, you can join Ajin Kovilo there and me later, and that'll go till 7.30 for a more intimate conversation. Others can stick around here. Ajahn. <laughs> Ajahn, you were muted. I'm sorry, but I think we got the gist, which was probably. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bye, Ajahn. See you. Great. Um, well, I'm only half in screen. So, Rabbi, go. do you mind if I ask a, a few other questions? Sure. Okay. 
Does Judaism have any teachings on suffering? Hmm. Uh, yes. Um, many, many different teachings. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a joke when, that people say, um, you know, two Jews, three opinions. And, um, but it's true. It's true. So um, there are many different uh, perspectives on suffering that we find in, in Jewish tradition. Um, one that I really resonate with um, is really is actually connected to our our um, our rituals and our practices around um, death and mourning. Um, when somebody dies, um, uh, the the when you hear that somebody has died traditionally in Judaism. Um, the the thing that you, the person who hears that news is supposed to say is Baruch Dayan Emet, blessed is the true judge, uh, referring to God. But it's it's hard. I know for me that's a hard thing to wrap my head around, especially when I'm thinking of a, when I hear about a tragic death, let's say. Um, but to I want to shine a light on that language of Emet. Of truth, um, because then we go to the funeral, and um, at the funeral, one of the first things that we do is with the direct mourners, um, the you know the spouse, children, parents of the the deceased, we um, tear a cloth that the people are wearing, or cut a ribbon uh, that symbolizes that, and that's called kriya uh, tearing, and when we do that, again. We acknowledge that this is the truth, uh, and it's not a truth. In that moment, I always feel like we didn't ask for this truth. This isn't the truth that we want, but it's truth nonetheless. And so we acknowledge the truth of that uh, tearing, that our the fabric of our lives is irreparably torn. It's true. Hmm. And then the next one of the next stages after the funeral is the burial. And um, we call the act of actually burying the body an act of chesed shel emet, which means, uh, which I like to translate as love in response to truth. And so what do we do when we're faced with this awful truth, the suffering? Uh, we love, we respond with love. And um, that includes acts of physical kindness. And you could imagine, you know, a long time ago, it, like you, you, you wanted to bury a body as quickly as you could because it could get, you didn't want it to get, you know, scavenged or something like that. And uh, so you were, you were protecting this person's body and, as an act of love. It's very physical. Uh, but then that re love response continues from there. And to me, that's the that's the practice in the Jewish practice, a Jewish practice in response to suffering. When suffering is there, it's true, uh, relatively at least. And what do we do? We respond with love. We find the ways to hold it with love. And as my father-in-law uh, would say, like uh, raising raising uh, my wife and sisters, um, loving is doing. Uh, it's not just a aspiration to be loving, but it's a re it's real responding, really responding with love. Thank you, Rabbi. And I think encapsulating it in you know the more profound moments of grief and moving. Uh, through that is makes that's a beautiful language to speak about this in and I wondered if um, I know we only have you for about three more minutes but it seems important to just touch on the current moment and speaking about how one moves through grief and difficult circumstances and truth with love and into love um, how would you say the Jewish community is working skillfully with the current charged moment um, in circumstances in the U.S. and in the world? And what teachings do you find have been helpful in settling people's hearts and uh, moving with grace through this? And um, 
you know, take as long or as short as you, you have on this. I know you have to go soon. It deserves mm. more time than we have. Yeah. Um, I, I very much appreciate the question. Um, so, um, on, um, October 7th, um, my wife's cousin was one of the 1200 who were killed in Israel and, um, uh, 32 years old, um, murdered in front of her children. And, um, I, you know, we found that out October 7th, October 8th. And then I was leaving for, um, a, a trip in Utah, like, a Jewish spiritual hiking trip in Utah um, with a Jewish group um, that started October 15th. So um, I share this because the personal side of it, because to me, it's like, um, it's, it, it, it's, it, I think it speaks to the reality that this is not theoretical, um, of course. But the real um, like pain and fear that comes from that, um, very very challenging to say the least, and um, and of course you know feeling that kind of way leads to all kinds of uh, unskillful things. Um, in addition to let's say some skillful things um, to to deal with that. But the fear and the suffering um, is so deep and primal. Um, I know for the Jewish people, you know, that feeling of like your life um, doesn't matter. Um, I've lived in Israel. I've spent a lot of time in Israel. We have a lot of family and friends there. So it, it's a place I could imagine myself being when that would have happened. Um, and as somebody who is like very much been wanting peace and the Palestinians to have their own state for many years. Um, very painful, like on many, many levels. Um, so when I went on that trip right after, and we thought of like, should we cancel this thing? Um, how can we take this group? It was like our whole community was in crisis. Worldwide Jews were in crisis. Um, my children's schools were having bomb threats. Um, it was very, very scary. And, um, but we pushed forward and, and had this trip. And it, as the, one of the most important things in Jewish spiritual life um, that I've come to just love so deeply is the way in which we, um, we're Jews worldwide read the same part of the Torah each week. And so there's this like ongoing narrative, um, and journey through the sacred text that everybody's doing at the same time. And it's connected with the seasons and holidays. And, um, and so, when we were doing this trip, um, it happened to be the week of the story of Noah's Ark. And so um, I was thinking a lot about this and, and holding it in my practice. And I came across, um, I remembered a, a Hasidic teaching by um, that rabbi mentioned earlier, the Svadimet, um, whose name was Rabbi Yehuda Lieb, Altar of Ger, um, about how um, when the world is um, like chaotic and upside down, um, one thing that we can do, like Noah, is uh, retreat into an ark and take refuge in an ark. And in that ark, says the Svadimet, um, we connect with our... Um, our like life source. It's like we replug into this life source that's always flowing that um, we felt cut off from outside in the chaotic seas. Um, but inside that arc, uh, we can connect with that life source and be revitalized. And um, a stay in the arc 
is always temporary in the Jewish tradition. Like we don't have a monastic tradition. And so there's the sense of like, you, you don't stay in the ark. Like you go back um, after a brief stay. Um, and the Svanemet says our Shabbat is like that ark. And, uh, and actually the name Noah in Hebrew, Noah, um, um, means uh, to rest. Um, and, and we have the concept of minucha, of like a deep spiritual rest that is that connected to the same word. And so the Svadimet says that essentially when the seas are chaotic, um, and he was teaching in like, you know, uh, 19th century Poland, and the Jewish community was very poor and like experiencing all kinds of pogroms, and they did not feel safe. But he was saying there's a way spiritually you can reconnect with your like root life force. Um, and then when you come out of the ark, um, you're revitalized. And so that teaching has been very important to me because I think, you know, it in this experience and, and truly like whatever side of this we're coming at it from, when we pay attention to the suffering in the world, our own suffering and others, it can very easily feel like we're in chaotic seas and um, spiritual practice can serve as like that arc. Mm -hmm. We could go and take refuge in that arc and recharge ourselves so that we can come back into the world um, more loving, um, more present, wiser, less reactive, um, and, you know, I see my work now in great ways of like it to a great extent of um, trying to support our, um, our people and um, staying connected to that life source, because when we are really feel so totally cut off from it, um, all we feel is despair and um, anger and um, fear. And um, so while those things are happening, I know that it's especially important to be um, helping people to like revitalize themselves and, and, and make sure that we stay connected to that, um, that Shefa, that like always flowing um, life force. Um, it, it, he, the Svadimet used the language of Chayut, which is very close to chi. It's like, it's like, and kind of the same concept, um, the Taoist concept of chi. Um, but, you know, I, in a big way, I just, my heart feels so broken about the situation in Israel and uh, Gaza. Um, and um, it feels scary and um, so sad. And my heart is so broken for all the loss of life that continues. And um, I just uh, pray for peace um, and for all, all beings to feel safe. Um, I know Jewish people have a right to live and exist, as do Palestinians and all people. Um, and so hopefully we can figure out ways to you know, share this small earth together. Rabbi, thank you so much for everything you said and for helping to hold that arc in um, the the current moment. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope there's a dove soon enough as yeah. well. Um, thank you. I know you have to go. I so appreciate you taking the time though. My, uh, really my pleasure in, uh, I hope, hope we'll stay connected. I, I would love that. And if you come to Seattle, reach out and we'll, uh, we'll find you a place to stay or something. We only have a website. <laughs> I love that. But, uh, yeah. And um, I'll, we'll keep your, your wife's cousin in our, our minds and hearts as, as everyone else in this, Thank this you. moment. Those who want to join on Zoom, um, I'm posting again the link in the chat and uh, you're welcome to jump on over there. Um, Otherwise, Rabbi, take care over there and good luck with everything you're Thank doing. You. Thank you. All the best blessings, everybody. Shalom. Shalom. Bye-bye.